Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, I'm Simon Long, The Economist's finance and economics editor, and you're listening to Money Talks. Coming up on the programme, why are the markets so blasé about nuclear Armageddon? I think the answer is they don't believe it's going to happen. How technology, even in rich countries, is making banking more inclusive. It's a story of the marriage of mobile phones and finance. And China's great leap backwards. Are its capacity cuts for real? What seems to be different this time is that the political will and the power to enforce these diktats appears to be stronger. But first, the world is reading some scary headlines these days after North Korea's latest and biggest test of a nuclear bomb. America's ambassador to the United Nations has accused the country of begging for a war. Her boss, President Donald Trump, sometimes gives the impression he's only too willing to oblige. Now, you'd expect all this to rattle the financial markets. And to discuss their reaction, I'm joined by our Buttonwood columnist, Philip Coggan. Hello, Philip. Hello, Simon. So, which is it, rattled or eerily calm? It's definitely nearer to eerily calm. We've seen a bit of reaction. Gold is up. Treasury bond yields have fallen, indicating investors are buying government bonds. The South Korean stock market which is probably the most sensitive to all this, is down a bit. But the markets are not reacting in a way that reflects the rhetoric being shown by either the US or North Korea. Now, why is this? One possibility is the markets are just not very good at assessing political risk. We saw that with the Brexit referendum, with the Donald Trump's election. In both cases, the markets didn't uh, correctly anticipate the result. Uh, And it may be that over the last 25 years or so, we've had a lot of scares about politics Uh, and a lot of big events that haven't really had a lasting effect on the markets, and thus investors have just become blasé about it all. Uh, And the key things they want to focus on are economic growth and uh, corporate profits rather than politics. But that, of course, uh, misses out the possibility there can be these fat tales, that there have been big events in history, the two world wars, and, of course, the Russian and Chinese revolutions, and even the first Korean War, 1950 to 1953, which did have significant impacts. Nuclear war, however, is somewhat different, isn't it? I mean, it's a, it's a zero-sum calculation. If there's a nuclear war, then presumably markets around the world become irrelevant to yes. the tank. Uh, if there's not, then it doesn't have a big effect on them. Well, I don't think it's quite as black and white as that. If, of course, civilization is destroyed, nobody cares about financial markets anyway. But you could still have a limited nuclear war just in Korea. So um, that would have severe impacts on trade. You know, we now have a globally integrated economy in a way that we didn't in the 1950s when Korea uh, was first in conflict. Korea is a big supplier of semiconductors, of liquid crystal displays, for example. And of course, this war would likely spill over to Japan, the way that North Korea has been testing missiles. And that's one of the biggest economies in the world. So if we did get some sort of huge conflagration in Korea, which may or may not involve nuclear missiles, even if it didn't, it would be 
very significant, then surely uh, the economy and the markets would take a hit. So why are markets calm despite the possibility? And I think the answer is they don't believe it's going to happen. They think it's bluster. And one nice explanation I saw from Rabobank was that the better that North Korea's deterrent looks, the less likely that the rhetoric of America is going to be enforced. So they are not going to make a military attack on North Korea because the costs are too great, not least for South Korea. They are not going to cut off trade with China, as Donald Trump suggested in a tweet, because that clearly would be economically severely damaging. So the markets are assessing that this is not going to develop into a war. And let's hope that the markets are right. They agree with Kim Jong-un, in other words, that the, the best way of securing peace is for North Korea to develop its own bomb. Yes, they think we'll end up with a sort of mutually assured destruction that they did in the Cold War, uh, where the deterrence is that if North Korea uses its weapons, it will be destroyed and that that will manage to keep the peace. Philip Coggan, Buttonwood columnist, thank you very much for joining us and let's hope the markets are right and we can all keep calm and carry on. One of the ways financial technology, fintech, is transforming banking is by making it more inclusive. And that's not just among the two billion adults, most of them in the developing world, estimated by the World Bank to be without a bank account. It's also about making credit and other financial services available to more people in rich countries too. Patrick Lane, The Economist banking editor, is here to explore this. Patrick, let's start with the developing world. I suppose it's mainly a story of the spread of mobile phones, of smartphones. Oh, exactly, Simon, yes. I mean, between 2011 and 2014, the number of people who were financially included, that is to say, had some sort of um, account, either with a bank or with a mobile money provider, increased by 700 million. It's a huge step forward. And that number will have increased even more since then. I mean, there are data being collected by the World Bank this year, which should show just how much further this process has gone. And and yes, it's a story of the marriage of mobile phones and and finance. And there are plenty of examples, most celebrated, of course, being, being M-Pesa, a mobile payment service in Kenya. But it's been a largely a developing world phenomenon. Well, India, of course, is a huge example too, isn't it, with the spread of this digital ID, ATA? Yes, that's right. And there's a Bcash in Bangladesh. There are other examples almost wherever you look. I mean, Southeast Asia is also, there's, there's also quite a spread of uh, financial services there to places where banks just didn't used to be. Turning to the rich world, though, mm. I suppose there most people have bank accounts. How is the revolution affecting them? There are two ways, if you like. It's made the cost of serving people whoever they are, cheaper. So mainly that affects people who already have bank accounts, who are already au fait with the financial system. So you know, we all know that uh, our own banks have got more or less good digital services which we can access through our smartphones. So that's, that's fairly plain. But for people who are, if you like, less well-served, less well-connected with the financial system, then the cost of serving them has also gone down as well. And you can divide these people into into various groups, I suppose. One is those who are already have bank accounts, who are connected to the financial system, but they may be poor, they may have variable incomes, they may have patchy credit records, and the cost of reaching them has gone down. Then there are people who are new to a country, migrants, people maybe arriving in this country from elsewhere in, in Europe who need to set up a bank account. And then there are people who are 
arriving in a new country because they've fled from somewhere else, refugees or asylum seekers who, who have very little money, very little documentation, but would also probably be better off if they were somehow linked to the, the financial system in some way through a through a, a, you know, at least a, a debit card or whatever, and probably would be better for the authorities in those countries too, because it's easier to keep an eye on electronic transactions, say, than it is on than it is on cash. And is this changing the structure of the finance industry? If you like, is it? the big incumbent banks who are using new services and just expanding their market share and carrying on like that? Or are bright new startups coming in with new technology, new ideas and and actually disrupting it? That's a very interesting point, I think, Simon, because just as in the developing world, the companies who've pushed forward financial inclusion have largely been non-banks, like telecoms companies in Africa, for example, or uh, the internet giants in, in China. In the rich world, the banks are spending huge amounts on financial technology, but that's to a very great extent improving their own systems, which have you know been a bit rickety for a, for, for a while, on improving the services to existing companies, but rather less on reaching out to the margins. That's not to say that, that there aren't banks who are doing it, and there are there are, there are good examples out there. But it's very interesting to to note that a lot of the most interesting companies in this area are are actually startups are in the and they're the ones who are in who are in the vanguard who've spotted an opportunity maybe because they they don't have the the legacy of uh, of existing companies. So there are some good examples of that out there. Patrick Lane, banking editor, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Simon. We're trying out some new shows and would like to hear your views on the topics and formats that interest you most. If you have a spare minute, please go to our Twitter page at Economist Radio to find our survey. Your views will help us decide our next steps. Finally, China, the world's second biggest economy, has also been seen as the source of one of its biggest economic headaches by producing too much. It's the world's largest producer of steel, aluminium, cement and coal. American and European companies have in the past accused China of swamping their markets with cheap metals. But China has been trying to curb overcapacity. And in fact, metals prices have been rising. Simon Rabinovich, our Asia economics editor, joins me now from Shanghai. Hello, Simon. Hi, Simon. First, could you just outline for us the scale of the problem China is trying to tackle and how it's trying to tackle it? Sure. So the problem is overcapacity in a range of different uh, industrial sectors. Uh, The the two that get the most attention, because they're the ones that China started with, and and they are the most problematic, uh, are coal and steel. Um, So uh, across these sectors, China produces nearly 50% of the global output. Now, China consumes a lot of coal and steel, so it does need to produce a lot. But nevertheless, uh, its capacity is is far in excess of its needs. If you look at the steel sector, for example, uh, there's different estimates. But one that is uh, usually agreed on is that China has roughly 350 million tons of excess steel capacity. What that means is that China's excess capacity alone uh, is equal to the total production of the next four biggest national producers, Japan, India, United States, uh, and Russia. 
Uh, so it's it's a big problem. It's a big problem for China domestically. It's it's you can sort of look at it as the flip side of a lot of the debt that they've accumulated in recent years. It's uh, increasingly low return investment, uh, and it's a problem for the global economy. It it had been a big overhang over commodity markets, uh, and it's one of the uh, sources of of tension in global trade. What they're doing is they're they're beginning to uh, come up with uh, a plan to to tackle that to effectively eliminate the excess capacity by diktat. Uh, It's a plan that was first unveiled at the start of 2016, and they have very ambitious targets uh, for for different sectors, specifically for coal and steel. And you can almost look at it as a great leap backwards. You know, the the great leap forwards uh, in in the late 1950s was Mao's idea about modernizing the Chinese economy. Uh, And one of the uh, ideas of that was that within 15 years, uh, he said, China would be able to produce more steel uh, than Britain. If you look at the current plans, in fact, in the next five years, China is going to eliminate steel capacity equivalent to 15 times that of what Britain makes today. So it's you know a remarkable testament to uh, how much the Chinese economy has, has advanced over the last few decades and um, the current predicament that, that it finds itself in. But presumably the central authorities must be facing considerable resistance at the local level by local governments and state-owned enterprises that find themselves being forced to close down and shed jobs. They are. And in fact, it's not the first time that they've tried to curtail capacity. Uh, you know, going back to the 1990s, in fact, this has repeatedly been a policy priority for the government. Uh, and yet we find ourselves in the situation of having excess capacity because they've tried to do it. And as you say, local governments object to it because, you know, if they cut out capacity in their local area, that means that they're going to hurt their growth results. Uh, And SOEs object to it because if they've invested in that capacity, they don't want to be the ones to take a loss. And they have a lot of bargaining power to try to block these sorts of requests. What seems to be different this time is that the political will uh, and the power to enforce these, these diktats appears to be stronger. It's partly uh, a political economy story um, because of the way that Xi Jinping has been able to concentrate power. uh, And, you know, he's said that local officials will be judged not just on delivering GDP growth, not just on meeting GDP targets, uh, but also on meeting capacity reduction targets. So it's become a a political priority. Uh, And then also the capacity had got to the point that a lot of local areas were seeing big problems in terms of indebtedness uh, and and just a lack of, of good investment opportunities. So I think the economic reality dawned that, you know, although this is difficult and unpleasant, uh, it's time to, to, to do something about it. Simon Rabinovich, thank you very much. Thank you. That's all for this episode of Money Talks. Don't forget to rate us on iTunes. And to read more about all these stories, check out the forthcoming issue of The Economist or visit our website at economist.com. I'm Simon Long. Thanks for joining us. In London, this is The Economist. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, 
for the ones who get it done.